not long ago. I happened to see, for the first time as an adult, the old Disney cartoon Snow White. It's kind of amazing, really. It's Walt Disney's very first animated feature. It was made back in 1937. And when you watch it, it almost feels more like an opera than like a modern movie. Snow White and the Prince and the Seven Doors each enter the film in this very stagey way. Each of them enters singing a song that declares who they are and what is it they want. I'm wishing, I'm wishing for the one I love. Snow White, for instance, sings to her reflection in a wishing well, and her voice echoes back. I'm hoping, I'm hoping, and I'm dreaming of the nice thing he'll say. And in fact, she meets the prince that very day. So I mentioned this to my sister, who worked at Disney at the time. In fact, she was a film executive there. That I'd seen Snow White and how it felt like an old opera and how old-fashioned the opening songs were. And she was like, no, 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 no. It's not that it's like an opera. What you're hearing is just the I Wish song. And she tells me, this is a standard thing, that this is in lots of movies. And the way it works is this. The very first song that the main character sings, they declare what it is that they want. And then that is what gets the story going. It's the I Wish song. I want more. For instance, the Little Mermaid, Karen says, sings about her wish to be human. I want to be where the people are. I want to see, want to see them dancing, walking around on those, what do you call them? Oh, feet. Quasimodo, in the Disney version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, sings this from his tower. That's his first song. Safe behind these windows and these parapets of stone, gazing at the people down below me. All my life I watch them as I hide up here alone, hungry for the histories they show me. All my life I wonder how it feels to pass a day not above them, but part of them. Hold on, we gotta stop that. That is just too uplifting. Anyway, this phenomenon, the I Wish song, goes way beyond Disney films. This, of course, is the I Wish that Dorothy delivers at the beginning of The Wizard of Oz to go over the rainbow. There's a land that I heard Turns out lots of old stage musicals begin with the I Wish song. Fiddler on the Roof has the daughters singing Matchmaker, Make Me a Match. Funny Girl has Barbara Streisand singing about becoming a star. My Fair Lady opens with Julie Andrews wishing for a room somewhere far away from the cold night air. And Stephen Sondheim, ever the virtuoso in this kind of thing, in Into the Woods has six different characters singing the various I Wishes in the opening number. I wish. The king is giving a festival. More than I wish. I wish to go to the festival. More than riches. And the I wish my cow would give us some milk. More than anything. I wish we had a child. Please pass. Please pass. I wish to go to the I festival. I wish to give us some milk. Or even choose a wish. My sister Karen said that even the Britney Spears movie, Crossroads, begins with an I wish song. Britney is uh, dancing on her bed in her underwear, singing into a spoon like it's a microphone to a Madonna song in a stereo, like a girl who wants to be a star which is what she becomes by the end of the movie. I've had to work. 
once somebody points out to you how common this is, you start to see the Irish song everywhere. And if you're the host of your own national radio show, you start to think, why haven't we done that? Why don't we ever start the show with a song where I express my hopes and my dreams for what the show will be today? Oh, the woman in Act One is wistful, but funny in a quiet way. And the guy in Act Two has a tough job to do, a mission that's gone on 20 days. I only wish their stories will be gripping and special, even though it's not the news and they're not stars. You remember what they said, you'll mention them at dinner, and when they're on, you will not leave your cars, because it's radio. Friends from WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. You know, those old movies and shows with the Irish songs, they were stories of people trying to achieve some dream, trying to get to some promised land. And here this week at This American Life, we filled our show with stories like that stories of dreamers, stories of people who want to reach a place that they've only heard about. We have three stories in three acts Starley Kine, David Rakoff, and Hillary Frank. I wish they'd just stay here and not touch that dial Please don't say goodbye or I'll see ya You know you wanna hear the final words we have from Tori Melodia Stuff's coming up, friends, so stay with us, eh? Neck one, Across the Street from Heaven Well, decades of I Wish songs, sung by cartoon characters, spawned an entire empire of I Wish. Disney films led to Disney theme parks. And at least for now, until the whole thing gets bought up by a big cable company, they're still there, emitting a whole fog of I Wish over small children. Starly Kine tells this story, true story, about a wish from her own childhood. I guess my mom is what you'd call overprotective. When I would sleep over at a friend's house, the parents would inevitably receive a call around 3 in the morning from my mom asking if they please wouldn't mind holding a mirror up to my mouth to make sure I was still breathing. After that, it was pretty hard to get invited back. I wasn't allowed to play soccer because I might get brain damage or die of internal bleeding. I wasn't allowed to ride a school bus because a driver might kidnap me. I wasn't allowed to walk my dog down our peaceful suburban street. It's much too dangerous out there, my mom would say. I pleaded with her for months, and she finally agreed on one condition. I could walk the dog one time, around the block provided I leave a trail of popcorn behind me so I didn't get lost. Later, outside, when the neighbor kids asked me what I was doing, I pretended not to hear them. This pattern would repeat itself many times over the years. I'd ask to do something, my mom would refuse. I'd beg her to change her mind, and when she finally did, the compromise she came up with was so strange and complicated that I often wish she had just kept saying no. Take what happened with Disneyland. A kid growing up in L.A. can get tired of Disneyland at an early age. Ten-year-olds talk about it as though it was a phase they went through when they were young, 
like when I used to kiss the bear on the snuggles box. Yeah, Disneyland's all right, I guess. I mean, if you're into that sort of thing. My sister and I, however, were different. By the time I was nine and she was six, we'd still never been to Disneyland. My mom thought it was way too dangerous. She arrived at this conclusion during one of her daily trials for the morning paper, scouting for dangers that could befall her children. Somewhere in the back, she'd found an article about a faulty ride at a fair in a small town somewhere in the Midwest, and that was enough to seal our fate for years. No matter how much evidence we provided to the contrary, no matter how much we begged or whined or threatened to stop eating and drinking for 30 days, she still wouldn't budge. But just as we were about to give up for good, my mother had a change of heart. Perhaps the guilt had finally gotten to her. In any case, she decided to throw us a bone. She still wouldn't take us to Disneyland. She hadn't totally lost her mind, after all. But she would let us do the next best thing. For two weeks, we could stay at the Disneyland Hotel. Judging by the look on her face, you could tell my mom was pretty pleased by this proposition. She beamed at us expectantly, her arms outstretched. All we could manage to do was shrug our shoulders and nod. When the time came to leave, we packed up our little suitcases. We threw in our favorite toys and games. I carefully folded in a fresh, unopened pack of Mad Libs I'd been saving for a special occasion. My mom made sandwiches for the ride and packed extra clothes for us in case it got too cold or too hot. She turned the air conditioning on in the car and waited until it was nice and freezing inside before letting us in. She didn't want us to get heat stroke. Then she pulled out of her driveway, and we were off. Fifteen minutes later, we were pulling into the parking lot of the Disneyland Hotel. My mom told me to keep track of where we parked, and I made a mental note that we were in the goofy section. Disneyland's parking lot was literally across the street. It was filled to capacity, with lines of cars stretching as far as the eye could see. Behind them, I could make out the top of Space Mountain. That's how close we were. We headed to the hotel and into the lobby. The receptionist looked at us and smiled. She leaned down and asked me where we were visiting from. I pretended that I didn't hear her. For the next three years, we'd go to the Disneyland Hotel for two weeks, twice a year, without ever crossing the street over into Disneyland proper. Whenever we forgot something, like a toothbrush or a raincoat, we'd buy a new one instead of driving the 15 minutes home to pick it up. This made us feel more like we were on vacation. Before I ever saw the hotel, I pictured a giant treehouse with branches stretching in every direction and little do-not-disturb signs hanging from their tips. But in reality, the rooms weren't all that different from any other hotels, which wasn't a bad thing. They had everything a little kid loves about staying in a hotel. The comforters were scratchy, and the beds were springy and fun to jump on. And we could have spent days pressing the button on the ice machine. The only problem was that we were constantly being reminded of what we didn't have. There was a picture of the Magic Kingdom on the ashtrays, on the complimentary notepads, on the soap, even worked into the paisley pattern of the curtains. When you ordered room service, the kids' menu also doubled as a Mickey Mouse mask. You just had to poke out the two slits for eyes and place the hooks over your ears. Then, when you looked in the mirror, you could see Mickey's face looking back at you. This wouldn't have been half as bad, if not for the fact that a real Mickey Mouse wouldn't have been caught dead in that hotel. He was much too famous. Instead, we had to settle for the second- and third-tier characters who walked around like they owned the joint. 
We soon had more autographs by J. Worthington Fowlfellow, the oily fox who lures Pinocchio away from school, than we knew what to do with. My sister and I would ask him when Mickey was coming, but he'd just shrug his shoulders and do a little dance. We had a perfect view of Disneyland from our room. We'd watch people line up outside to entrance an hour before it even opened. At night, we could see the glow of the electric light parade moving down Main Street. At first, we were sure our mom would cave. There was just no way she couldn't. She had taken us, her two precious children, her whole reason for living, to the funnest place on Earth, only to stop 50 feet shy of the fun. It was like she was dangling the fun in front of us to see how long we could go on grabbing it to air before finally collapsing of exhaustion. There was a monorail that took the hotel guests directly to the park. It looked like something out of the Jetsons. In the beginning, my sister and I hung out in front of the monorail all the time. We'd bring our coloring books and connect four pieces and just camp out. We'd even eat our lunch there. We were like dogs waiting behind the door for our owner to finally open it and let us out. Every time we heard footsteps, we'd perk up our ears, hoping it was our mom coming to tell us it was time. We were ready. But she never came. Past the time, my sister and I became experts at the various kid activities the hotel had to offer. We could assemble the Donald Duck popsicle stick faces with our eyes closed. The hotel had a fake beach next to the pool, even though the real beach was only 10 minutes away. Every hour, a judge with a whistle around his neck would give an award for the best sandcastle. The prize was five Disney dollars, valid for use only at Disneyland. My sister and I always won, because we never had to get up and leave. The other kids would barely have managed their first tunnel, while we would already be adding on a second level to the carriage house and back. We eventually got to know the different people who worked there, the guys who sang in the fake barbershop quartet who didn't like each other at all, the mime who, frankly, seemed to be phoning it in, the man who sold churros that we bought for dinner. My favorite, however, was a caricature artist. We'd always wait until the last night of our trip to get our caricature done. We liked to save it for the end. The caricature artist would ask what we enjoyed doing most, and we'd tell him whatever we were into at the time. When I was nine, I had just gotten a new dog. The caricature artist drew my dog and me riding Space Mountain. He made my dog look like Pluto. His paws are sticking up in the air. My mom still has these caricatures. They cover an entire wall of her house, picture after picture, the way other parents display photos of their kids. If you look at them in order, you can actually see us grow up before your very eyes. Our oversized heads and little bodies, acquiring different hairstyles and fashions over the years. There I am in fourth grade, learning how to swim. The caricaturist drew me jumping into a tiny bucket of water. In fifth grade, I discovered boys, and you can see me and Kirk Cameron riding a tandem bicycle. Sixth grade was my dark phase, where I didn't think I was interested in anything. The caricaturist just drew me standing in line for the Pirates of the Caribbean, rolling my eyes and looking surly. The hotel was literally brimming with children, a lot like how I imagined Never Neverland to be. Everywhere you turned, you spotted one, hiding behind a potted plant or laying under the Continental Breakfast Buffet table. It was like their parents had surrendered all control of them. You'd get in the elevator, and there'd be at least a dozen kids, dressed however they saw fit. One wore a snorkel on his head, even though he wasn't going to the pool. One wore a sneaker on his right foot and a cowboy boot on his left. Several of them wore capes made out of hotel pillowcases. Within seconds, some kid would push every one of the elevator buttons, and the other kids, deep in conversation with one another, would clap distractedly. 
If there are any adults in there with us, they'd roll their eyes, but not even all that much. They knew this place was for us. My sister and I made friends with these kids whenever we could. Timing was key. It was imperative that we catch them before they made the trek across the street. After that, we'd lose our edge. So every night, we'd hang out by the checkout desk and await the new arrivals. We'd sidle up to them while their parents were checking in and ask them where they were from. We told them that we knew the hotel pretty well, so they should stick with us. We knew how to get stuff. Do you like extra marshmallows with your hot chocolate? We'd say. The room service guy is a friend of ours. How about extra whipped cream? We'd spend a few hours with them, or if we were lucky and it rained, a full day. Then these kids would head off to the park. My sister and I would be waiting outside the monorail when they returned. They'd climb off, all loaded down with souvenirs, looking pink and exhausted. But in their eyes, we detected a change. They'd seen things we couldn't even begin to imagine. And we couldn't think of anything to say to them. After a few days when they checked out of the hotel, none of them bothered to say goodbye. We did finally make it to Disneyland as kids, when I was 11 and my sister was 8. And it happened in the most random way possible, like a piano falling out of the sky onto our heads. One morning, long after my sister and I had stopped asking, my mom just said, Hey guys, do you want to go to Disneyland? It was a school day. We had no idea where this uncharacteristic burst of spontaneity was coming from, but my sister and I had learned by now not to question these things. Once we were finally inside the gates, my sister and I knew exactly where to go. There had been a map of the park with illustrations of all the different rides in the hotel lobby. We studied it so long we had it memorized. But the real Disneyland was different than the one we'd imagined for so long. It was strange to see that it was an actual place with long lines and smelly bathrooms. When I climbed onto a ride, I was surprised by how solid the seat felt. When you think of fantasy places in your head, you never think about the fact that they're plastic, that the overhead bar might pinch your neck. We thought it was great. My mom, of course, wouldn't let us go on everything. She said the Matterhorn looked like it was about to fall apart, and we knew Thunder Mountain was out of the question. But we didn't care. She seemed more relaxed that day than we'd ever seen her. She laughed her head off on the teacups. And when my sister got a paper cut from the salted pretzel wrapper, my mom just gave it a kiss instead of rushing her to the emergency room. We were getting our Mickey Mouse hats embroidered with our names when her mom came up to us and told us to follow her. She led us to the ticket office in front and asked the lady for three annual passes, one adult and two kids. The passes meant we could come to Disneyland anytime we wanted that year, for free. The lady took our ID photograph for the card, my sister and I each wearing the same stunned expression on our face. The thing is, we never went back that year. We didn't use the passes once. Before going, my sister and I had been sure that once we were there, we'd never want to leave. Nothing was more important than being allowed inside. But now that we'd actually seen what it was, it's not that we were disappointed, but it just didn't loom so big anymore. We kept meaning to go back, but other things kept coming up. Finally, when I was 18, I returned. That year, my prom was held at the Disneyland Hotel. Being there as a teenager with my friends, it was hard to believe it had all ever happened. I didn't want anyone to find out, but I just knew the place too well. At one point, one girl wondered aloud where the bathroom was. 
Oh, it's just down the hall, about 20 paces, I said. Past the storage room, but before the lost and found. Just make a left, then a right, and then another right, and you're there. Everyone stared at me, and I felt my cheeks go red. My mom, of course, initially didn't want me to go to prom at all. She worried about some kind of accident on the road, about the limo getting a flat and a crazy person picking us up and killing us all, about drinking, about my friends, about my dress, about my date. The only way I was able to calm her down was when I told her where the prom was being held, the Disneyland Hotel. Her shoulders immediately untensed when I said the words. In reality, of course, sending a group of teenagers off to be by themselves in a hotel is exactly the sort of thing a parent probably should worry about. And in retrospect, letting loose your daughters at six and nine years old without supervision of any kind in a hotel full of strangers and adults in masks was probably a lot more dangerous than walking across the street to take them on It's a Small, Small World. But my mom never saw it that way. For her, the Disneyland Hotel was always the safest place on earth. Starly Kine. She hosts the podcast Mystery Show. Coming up, an experiment in trying to reach enlightenment involving a man and six to eight ounces of vegetable broth. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. It's This American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we use some theme and bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, Promised Land, Stories of people who wish to get somewhere they've never been. We've arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, Life in the Fast Lane. There's an ancient idea that fasting can lead to moments of enlightenment. Jesus fasted for 40 days in the desert. The Buddha fasted, as did Pythagoras and Gandhi and George Bernard Shaw. Is it possible that all that stands between us and genius and insight is food? Well, we wanted to find out if anyone could reach this promised land, and our contributor David Rakoff agreed to be the guinea pig in a little experiment. He went on a 20-day fast. That was 14 days with no food, three days transitioning in and out on either side, to find out if he would see God or some variant. Let's start with the showstopper, shall we? For the next three weeks, my path to enlightenment goes like this. I am to wake up, head to the bathroom, and give myself an enema. You heard me. Warm water, chamomile tea, and eight drops of lemon juice. I am to hold it in for 15 minutes, lying on a towel on the bathroom floor, passing the time by reading some sort of spiritual literature. I opt for the New York Times. This is followed by a shower and a breakfast of 8 to 12 ounces of clear vegetable broth. At other points during the day, I cannot say exactly when because this is copyrighted proprietary information, I will consume fruit juice, vegetable juice, herbal tea, and finally, more broth just before bed. I'm on an extended fast. I find my particular fast on the web. It's like a correspondence spa. For about $300, I am provided with an exhaustive regimen that includes the recipe for the special broth I will be drinking, along with a schedule for the additional juices and herbal teas that I will also be drinking. And I will be guided by the center's founder and president, a man I'll call Brian, based in California. I can email him with all of my questions. 
I make sure to tell my doctor, and Ira also agrees to check in with me every now and then. David, um, this is the first day of your fast? Yes. Are you very, very hungry right now? I'm not very, very hungry. I'm quite sleepy. And I'm, and I'm finding it rather difficult to talk uh, this much. Wow. You, it's, it's taxing. Yeah. And that, that kind of scares me, actually. People who stop taking in carbohydrates have to make this switch from one kind of fuel to the other kind of fuel, from carbohydrates to these very tiny fat cells known as ketones. This is Dr. Lisa Sanders, who, as part of a team at Yale, spent the past five years analyzing the science behind over 700 different diets. She's also written a book based on this work called The Perfect Fit Diet. On day one of the fast, she tells me my sluggishness is due to this switch from carbohydrates to ketones. When that happens, people feel sort of tired and out of sorts. Some people describe feeling a headache. Um, after a couple of days, uh, people often return to feeling very, very normal, um, even though they're not taking in any uh, carbohydrates, even though they're not taking in their usual s supply of gasoline. Then people say that they don't feel hungry at all. There's something about ketones that makes, that kills your appetite. Food is not an issue for them anymore. What, what I've been reading is that, yes, they, they do predict a few days at the beginning where it's going to be quite difficult. Um, and then comes a kind of a, a clarity, peace, and clear-headedness. And I was wondering whether there was a physiological reason that you could think of that might account for this sort of enhanced clarity. Hmm. Well, hmm, let me think about that for a second. Um, ketones are your brain's preferred fuel. So maybe there's something about that that makes people feel good. The website where I bought this fast explains my changes in mood very differently. It is not about ketones or switching fuel sources. It is about toxins. According to my fasting center, as an urban North American living in the 21st century, I have a surpassingly toxic body, with an average of 5 to 10 pounds of damaging impurities housed in my cells. My nerves and organs are apparently coated with this ubiquitous, sludgy film of judgment-clouding, character-distorting poison. Chemical fertilizers, remnants of medication, heavy metals, artificial colorings, all conspire to make me less than the best David I can be. Under this logic, the reason I feel so rotten for these first few days of my fast is that as the poisons leave the relatively inert resting places they have carved out in my cells and pass through my skin and, most importantly, my colon, they will once again exert their poisonous effects. Stuff that hurts going in will hurt coming out, I am told. And it's all about stuff coming out, so to speak. Every fast I research is intensely concerned with notions of purity and cleanliness and the need to flush oneself out, whether through laxative teas and chugging a gallon of salt water, or in my case, the enemas. Did I mention that I have to do a daily enema? The fixation is on the eradication of these supposed pollutants, five to ten pounds of them. That is the size of a robust newborn baby. 
It seems like an awful lot of poison in an ostensibly healthy person. Dr. Sanders says there's little scientific proof of this. I've never seen any evidence of 5 to 10 pounds of toxins stored in our bodies. Most things don't do much and don't get around that much. It, our, our cells are pretty selective about what they take up and what they don't take up, as far as I know, as far as we've been able to show. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and purification of your body, we've, we live in a dirtier and dirtier world, and yet our lives are longer and longer. Go figure. So would this be pseudoscience? I think so. I mean, there's a lot of stuff we don't know about the human body. There's no question about it. And so that's why I can't uh, just out of hand say, this is a whole bunch of hogwash. Um, We should have studies. If this is true, then they should be able to show us that people who do this are healthier in some measurable, tangible way than people who don't do it, and not just those who volunteer to do it, because obviously this is going to appeal to uh, somebody who's very interested in their health and their well-being, somebody who cares about what they eat and that they exercise correctly. So, so this is not going to be science. This might be a, this might be beliefs, you know. And societies are filled with beliefs about things that are good for you. Um, that may or may not be, you know, that may have no scientific merit whatsoever, but that doesn't mean that they don't work. It doesn't mean that they do work either. The fasting program I'm on doesn't just promise weight loss, greater energy, and enhanced virility, but also insight, clarity, and inner peace. And to be quite frank... I could do with some inner peace. Do you have any advice for me? <laughs> well, I would I would not think of this as a health experiment. I wouldn't think of this as a weight loss experiment. I would think of this as a uh, uh, a spiritual experiment. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I read about these holy people who. Uh, you know, fast for weeks at a time and have these visions. And you really don't know what to do with it because you know that something happened to them, but they interpreted what happened to them through their spiritual interest. I'd be interested in seeing how uh, a rationalist uh, would interpret these same feelings. I hope you uh, see something. (laughs) I hope you have a good experience. By day four, the day I'm supposed to have turned the corner, I am certainly feeling better. I am no longer hungry, and the headaches and listlessness are largely gone. I feel more or less normal. But that's it. No brilliant shafts of light piercing the clouds, no strange hallucinatory visitations. By day five, I have more energy. I even managed to make it to the gym. On day six... I definitely feel something, although not what I expected. I rise early, my energy is high, I feel great. I stand in the bathroom on top of the spread-out newspaper and give myself my weekly haircut. And then, suddenly, my heart begins to race. I am overcome with a shaky weakness and the distinct feeling that I cannot trust my body to do what it is meant to do. 
or rather, that what my body is meant to do in that moment is to pass out and have me crack my head against the cold, unforgiving edge of the bath. I get dressed and go to see my doctor a block away. I buy a banana on the way, just in case everything goes to hell and I have to end this thing. My doctor takes my blood pressure and my pulse, both normal. He's not crazy about the idea of me fasting, but tells me that I am essentially fine, and I return home, my fast intact, the banana uneaten. I call Ira to tell him about it. Now I've got this banana sitting on my desk like a loaded gun. You know, and it's, wasn't it Chekhov who said? You know, if you introduce a Mm -hmm. gun in the first act, it's got to go off by the third. Here is Ira's suggestion of what to do with this taunting fruit. Maybe it's just the fast, but he seems to be talking double quick. Throw it at the window. No, I think what I'm going to do is... Throw it at the window. Well, Ira, I live on a street throwing it out the window. (laughs) hit somebody. It's actually against the law, probably. You live on the first floor. Throw it at the window. I don't live on the first floor. This is fascinating. (laughs) Should I be wearing anything special when I throw it out the window? Does it make you feel safer to have the banana there, or is the banana taunting you, like, like saying... The banana's not really taunting. There was a point when I thought this morning, well, I thought a few, few things. I thought, well, that's it. It's over. And then I thought, ah, back to the world of food, of interest and diversion. Yahoo! But then I felt um, like a failure, and kind of back to square one, like, oh, God, how am I going to get through another week of this. Well, it's time for me to make my broth. Uh, I have to make this every two days or so. It serves to provide me with um, electrolytes so that your heart doesn't stop. I was thinking about this lack of enlightenment that I'm feeling, and I sort of thought, like I was that woman in um, the movie Manhattan, who's at a party, and she finally, she says to Woody Allen, something like, I finally had an orgasm, and my analyst told me it was the wrong kind. I just feel like, how come all the other kids are getting enlightened, and I'm not? Day 9. Here is something else I am not feeling. Something Ira keeps egging me on about. Have you started to feel superior? Am I walking around, he wants to know, an ethereal creature of light and air passing by the falafel stand, for example, and looking disdainfully from my slender Olympian perch at the weak-willed humans who feel the need to stuff their gullets with something as earthbound and disgusting as solid nourishment? Not really, as it turns out. This fast hasn't lessened my usual feelings of venality and guilt. If anything, they've increased a little, because my days are taken up in this narcissistic rumination about my intake and my output. 
Between the hours of making the broth and the enemas, this is one of the most self-obsessed things I have ever done in my life. And I say that as a first-person journalist. One night on the subway, I see a woman at the end of the car. She leans over to the people sitting next to her and asks in a quiet, friendly, almost business-like tone, Do you have any extra food I can buy off of you? I can only hear her because the train is silent. She isn't standing in the middle of the car addressing us. She's just asking those within earshot. I walk over and give the woman a dollar before I get off at Union Square. But do you have any extra food? She asks me. I apologize and say that I do not have any extra food. But I know in that moment that there is neither clarity nor serenity enough in the world that would give me the chutzpah to tell her why not. Day 11. Brian advises everyone on the fast to keep it to themselves and not tell too many people. What I will find, I am told, is that those who know I am fasting will project their own worries or anti-fasting prejudices onto me, saying things like, you look too thin, whereas those who have no idea will simply think I look healthy and great. It seems true. My friends who do know I am fasting think I look gaunt. But then I go to synagogue for the baby-naming service of some friends' twins. I've lost 12 pounds. I wait for the compliments. I find out later that someone asked my friend Jeff, does David have cancer? Captain's Log. I wonder if this is something. I am curiously relaxed, as if my bones had been removed. How can I explain this? It is as if I have taken an anti-anxiety pill. I am aware of my problems and the things that concern me. Intellectually, they can still freak me out. But my physical anxiety response is gone. On the street, a bike messenger zooms by dangerously close to me, nearly shearing off my kneecaps. I can only mutter, jerk, where once I might have hissed it. I cannot work myself up into a lather, Do I think, oh, hello, God's creature, fellow and bicycled human, come ride freely, let the wind carry you like a seedling, like a bird? No. What I thought was, jerk, I hope you were crushed beneath the wheels of a bus. But the difference was, the venom that pulsed through my veins now had the restful back-and-forth rush of the ocean's waves. It's a pleasant feeling, certainly, but hardly seems worth the effort of weeks without food. If this is all there is, then I hate to say it, but Miss Peggy Lee was kind of right. Day 13 without food. It is the home stretch of the fast, and I have lost 14 pounds. I am not hungry, but I am experiencing appetite. I find myself thinking about food a lot, cooking it almost more than eating it. I pour through books and surf the web for recipes. Roast goose with prunes, brown butter madeleines, candied grapefruit peel, 
precisely the kind of oldie-worldy delicacies Hans Christian Andersen's little match girl saw dancing before her eyes before she froze to death on the Copenhagen street. On the final day of fasting, I bound out of my house, a brilliantly blue and freezing day. I am feeling jaunty and alive, like a character in a movie who, newly in love, walks through the streets he thought he knew, only to find them vibrant and full of beautiful humanity, and he a wonderful part of it all. He dances for a group of French children. He smiles with friendly commiseration at a young couple, flirts non-threateningly with an old lady telling her, Madam, you smell delicious. He tips his hat to the cop. But it is not universal brotherhood that has me jazzed as I dance along. What I am thinking to myself is, Hello, world. Tomorrow, I eat an apple. My high spirits are tempered with something else, though. A sheepishness that I've somehow failed to receive the thing that I should have, and here I am, already out the door, and it's too late. When I tell Brian that I feel good but not markedly different, he doesn't hesitate to tell me that my experience is atypical. From Brian's perspective, I didn't approach this with an open mind. I need to talk to someone who's managed to achieve what I did not. I compare notes with Amy Warren, who has fasted five times. When I read the pamphlet initially, I was like, oh, this is all about cleansing and getting rid of toxins that have been building up in your system. And I found that first time I did the fast, that was the most satisfying in terms of feeling that the toxins were leaving my body. And, and you felt that that happened? I mean, Yes, I saw it. I mean, I saw it. In what form did it take? Well, is it appropriate to talk about on the radio? Oh, okay, so it took that form. The, I see. I mean, I, it might sound really insane and gross, but the stuff that would come out of you, you would be like, "Where? What is that?" You wouldn't even know what it was. It looked like it looked like from a movie. Like it looked like unreal. You know, I was just going to say, by a movie, you don't mean Room with a View. No. I mean a movie, like in Star Wars, where in that sewer and, yeah. and the water and the, all that sludge and slime and weird bubbly things and just misshapen, odd. What is that? It's all there. And it comes out of you. And then you're like, what? And when everything's running clear, like water from a faucet, you feel like you're new, like you're a new person. And you feel like you're sexy and, like, alive, and you feel like you're somehow your highest self. There's nothing you couldn't do. Really? In terms of, like, your life and your goals and everything, you feel sort of focused and clarified and, like, you know what you want to do, and you, you, you feel like you could do anything. You feel empowered. Really? Wow. I did it wrong. Oh, no, you didn't do it wrong at all. I think I did, but you it's didn't. okay. But I didn't feel that clarity. I mean, I feel good, but I feel, you know, I feel just as good when I've had, you know, a tiny bit of caffeine and, you know, it's exactly, and I've exercised or something. So I don't really know. I, I feel like everybody's like, oh, where were you? Paris. Oh, did you see the Eiffel Tower? Tower? What? At the Louvre? Uh, Louvre? I didn't see that. that. You know, that, that somehow I managed to miss everything. It's like, oh, well, how was the food? Was it wonderful? Well, there was a, a vending machine and some junior mints. <laughs> Thank you. 
In a little unscientific survey conducted by the producers of this show, calling around to friends and friends of friends who'd fasted, and even for people who specifically did my fast, albeit for much longer, they found that everyone felt great physically, energetic and alert, and nearly everybody spoke about a clarity of mind. But only one person seemed to feel more than that. This woman said that for a moment while driving, her spirit was filled up and she was overcome with a sense of total well-being, of a level and profundity she'd never felt before. Amy's experience was more typical. When I first started doing it, I was thinking like, yeah, I'm going to, it's going to be like spiritual nirvana. I'm going to recognize the universe in a way that I've never recognized the universe. But I really feel like that expectation, you know, it was, it never happened. It never happened? No, not in a way that I would have sort of expected it to. I mean, I did definitely, I always felt a sense of clarity and, and focus different than any other time in my life. But I never felt like it was a religious or spiritual thing. It's Wednesday morning at about 7.30. And today is the apple. On the first day I'm allowed to eat, before I have my apple, I'm supposed to mix a tablespoon of bran and flaxseed into the broth. It makes it as thick as porridge, and it knocks me out. Okay. It's an hour and a half later. Um, I hadn't thought that eating would be quite this difficult. And I suppose I better uh, try and eat this apple... It's very strange. I looked forward to it for so long, and now it just feels like a little bit of an ordeal. All right. Here I am, chewing food again. I almost feel like I was never away from it. Right when I started the fast, I had the briefest romantic notion that it wouldn't just work, but it really would be the magic bullet. I entertained the fantasy that the fast would short-circuit logic and somehow my problems, such as they are, didn't need the talk and the scrutiny. They needed this. There was even a moment where I could see my problems, feel them, impacted and concentrated into a gray, plaque-like obstruction. A thick, squat blockage the shape and size of a scallop somewhere in the channels of my body. And I thought that this was the way that they would be pulverized and broken up and flushed away. Now that I've finished the fast and am on the other side, it's hard to remember exactly what I was waiting for although I do know that it was something wholly unfamiliar and thrilling. Like a new color, one I'd never seen before. Not a mixture, no trace of blue or yellow or red. What would that look like? Even though our physical world makes the existence of such a thing basically impossible, I'd still really like to see that. 
David Rakoff. He put the story of his fast into his book, Don't Get Too Comfortable. He died back in 2012. We first ran the story years before that. His final book is a novel written in rhyming couplets. It's called Love, Dishonor, Marry, Die, Cherish, Perish, a novel by David Rakoff. Mystery Train. We close our show today with this story of two people, each yearning for a certain future, though not necessarily the same future. Hillary Frank remembers the story. The lights were out. We were stopped on the tracks, and Danielle wasn't happy. All I wanted, she said, was to have McDonald's with my boyfriend. It was supposed to be their big Friday night in Boston. They were sitting diagonally behind me, Danielle and her boyfriend Donnie had gotten on the train in Providence a few stops after mine. Eavesdropping in the dark, I had learned their names, that they were 15, four years younger than me, and that they were surprised to see the girl sitting by the window behind me. Donnie's surprise was pleasant. Man, Cynthia, I didn't expect to run into you. And Danielle's was more like, yeah, didn't think I'd run into you. Other than an elderly couple in the back, we were the only people in the car. Cynthia told them it was her 18th birthday. She invited Danielle and Donnie to the party her sister was throwing for her in Boston. I'll get you good and wasted, she told them. Donnie practically cheered. Danielle must have punched him because he winced out loud. I ain't doing none of that, she said. Yeah, you are, Donnie teased. You're getting doped. Am not, she said. You know I can't do that. None of it, you know. Come on, Cynthia prodded. It'll make your man happy. No, Danielle repeated. She sounded like she was going to cry. I can't. I can't. The lights came back on. The engine revved and we inched along the tracks. Everyone sat quietly for a minute. Cynthia spoke first. How long you been together? Five months, Danielle answered. Cynthia seemed to be working up to something. How long have you known? Three months, Danielle said quietly. Cynthia's seat creaked. I was once too, she told Danielle, a couple years ago. Pregnant, I thought. We were back up to speed. The conductor poked his head into our car to tell us we'd been delayed because some juveniles had placed shopping carts on the tracks. It seemed strange for him to be using the word juveniles when we were all teenagers ourselves. Cynthia asked Donnie if he loved Danielle. Of course I love her, he said. She's mine. If you really did, then you wouldn't have kissed Angel, Danielle snapped. Angel, Cynthia asked. 
She scooted over to the aisle seat. Yeah, Danielle said. He kissed her two weeks ago, even when he knew she had AIDS. Not a real kiss, Donnie said. What do you mean, not a real kiss, Cynthia asked. It was nothing, he told her. Yeah, right, nothing, Danielle shot back. Cynthia leaned over the aisle towards Donnie. Show me, she said. Show you what? Cynthia slid back to the window seat and patted the cushion beside her. Show me how you kissed Angel, she told him. As Donnie crossed the aisle, Danielle yelled at him, Don't show her, tell her. It's okay, Cynthia said calmly. I mean no disrespect. Say it with me. No disrespect. Fine, Danielle mumbled through clenched teeth. No disrespect. So, show me, Cynthia said. There was a soft smooching sound, which must have been a peck on the cheek, because both of the girls shouted, No way, in unison. I know that's not how he did it, Danielle said. Cynthia laughed. Show me for real, she commanded. Tonguey mouth smacks were followed by Danielle tearing at Donnie's back. There was slapping and whining verging on tears, and Cynthia's voice saying, Chill, girl, I stuck my tongue in his mouth, not the other way round, as if that made it okay. Then she added, You kissed Angel like that, you can't love this one that much. It went on like this for around 20 minutes. Cynthia asking Donnie if he'd ever cheat on Danielle. Donnie saying no. Cynthia saying, you wouldn't, even if I did this to you? Donnie buckling to temptation, and Danielle grumbling in her corner with occasional outbursts of fury. Finally, Cynthia stopped her come-ons and said, You are sick. You would do all that with me, and you say you love her? But I do, Donnie said uncertainly. I'm going to be with her till the day I die. You should dump him, Cynthia told Danielle. Then she asked Donnie if he had a place to stay. Danielle answered for him. 25 Maple Street with me and my mom. Well, if that ever changes, Cynthia said, you'll always have a place in Boston at my sister's apartment. You can see it right now if you come to the party. The train slowed as we entered Back Bay Station. We're going, Donnie announced. I'm going to McDonald's, Danielle said. Girl, come on, it'll be fun, Cynthia said. She's going, Donnie said. She's going and getting so doped. Am not. They were still going back and forth like this by the time we got off the train. I stood there watching them on the platform, wondering what Danielle would end up doing. I still think of her sometimes. I end the evening in my head. On bad days, Danielle goes to the party. She watches Donnie drink spiked punch and smoke pot and maybe settle into a corner with a cute girl in a halter top. Sometimes, she winds up at McDonald's by herself, washing down a Big Mac and supersized fries with a chocolate milkshake. But on good days, Danielle crosses the tracks, sits quietly on a bench, and waits for the next train back to Providence. Hillary Frank, she hosts the Earwolf podcast, The Longest Shortest Time. Miles to the promise.
Our program is produced today by Diane Cook and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Jane Marie, and Sarah Koenig. Our senior producer for today's show is Julie Snyder. Our technical director is Matt Tierney. Production help from Lyra Smith. Music for our original I Wish song at the top of today's program was composed and performed by Mr. Brian Morris. Thanks, Mary Gaffney, for recording that for us. Thanks also to Beth Miller, Karen Gardner, Michael Salt, Tom Stemple, Andreas Bookinger, Dennis Paulson, Jorge Just, and Kerry Willis. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. WBEZ management oversight for our program by Mr. Tori Malatia, who mysteriously says to me every morning when he sees me at the office, Madam, you smell delicious. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of This American Life. So you take the plane, but I'll take the bus this time. But Jonathan, you're crazy for taking the bus. Well, I'm crazy, so what's the fuss? Two whole days on that stinking bus. Yes, and I sleep fine. So you take the plane, I'll take the bus this time. Go, Donnie, tell him.